0: everybody welcome back to d and j's epic quest i am justin or soft pillows and this is
1: this is derek or bird that steals
0: how you been man
1: pretty good how have you been
0: you know not too shabby um it was the last week of my like my first job my school jobs where like everybody is there i unfortunately i'm a year-round employee so i have to be there when no one else is there which is fine like it's a completely different type of environment because literally nobody needs you so you can kind of just do what you need to do to get done but what was really cool is um on my like vacation away they always do this like at employee appreciation thing and i just gotta say i love i love my coworkers so much because they picked one out for me and it had just a couple of bottle of wine a couple bottles of wine in it but it also had like a 50 dollar gift card to barnes and noble so i'm like oh damn right i was just like fucking sweet so i ordered i ordered memories of ice in paperback And then I ordered, like, the next three Redwall books after the one that I'm currently reading. And then I picked up uh, Priory of the Orange Tree, which I am so fascinated to read. And hopefully, that is a book that, like, you and I can read and podcast about. Because I have heard nothing but great things about that book.
1: I have heard of the book also, but I do not know anything about it.
0: I think I've read like a very quick synopsis of it. I don't remember that synopsis, but I just everybody all over the internet that I catch about that book like raves about it. I, I haven't heard a single bad thing about it. So, and the cover art is just super alluring for some reason. That's cool. But yeah, um, so I did that, and also you're probably gonna make fun of me for this one a little bit, but. I'm so much enjoying um, 60% of the Gardens of the Moon, the very first book of the Malazan Books of the Fallen. But I have been attempting to track down the hardcover tour, tour versions of these books, which I don't know if you know anything about the hardcovers. Well, they're not in print anymore. They're no longer printed and they're super hard to find in good condition so i was able to track down a couple of them uh memories of ice midnight tides and then dead house gates for like 50 to 70 bucks a pop damn yeah uh i don't know why i don't know why i have to have i don't know i think it's just the whole like these are super rare and to actually own one would be great from an author that i'm really digging so yeah
1: i'm not gonna make fun of you for that um maybe if you haven't you should check out thrift books that's where i've been getting my books from lately and i picked up i don't have it yet but um the World of Ice and Fire book, which is normally like a $50 book, but I got it for like $11.
0: Ooh.
1: And, and then uh, I had like points to get like a free book, which I think it had to be like under five bucks or something, or maybe if it was over five bucks, it would have just took five bucks off. I don't know. Um, but but I, I don't remember what the other book was that I picked up. And then not too long ago, I picked up uh, The Prince of Thorns. I don't remember what that series is called. That was the that was the first book. Um, another one that I've seen a lot about, and it's supposed to be pretty dark and brutal. Um, but I got all three of those books for less than twenty bucks shipped.
0: Oh, fuck yeah!
1: And they're all in good condition too. Huh. they're not obviously brand new, but I mean, they're not. They're not like ragged.
0: Right? Yeah, they're not like left in the condition that you know you when you would find in like a library or a school library. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I've heard of their books. They they sometimes don't have what I'm looking for. Um, so like I've tried Bill, Bilbio, Albris, world of books, Abe's books, eBay, Amazon, you know, um, but all of those seem to be way overpriced. I don't know what it is about the ones that they're selling on eBay right now, where they're, you know, 20 to $30 cheaper than, and in better conditions. So I don't know if the people selling those books are quite aware that they're worth just a little bit more than what they're selling them for. But yeah, I guess that's like what's new.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a good little book talk there.
0: Um, speaking of book talks, I, I mean, are you still wanting, are you still thinking about maybe taking a break from this to do your Vasquez alien book?
1: um yeah well i think by that time we'll be finished with this book this particular one anyways
0: we should be a couple of chapters into uh dead house gates i would imagine because you you figure roughly about six months a book
1: but yeah i think i mean if you're up for it i think that cool. yeah, would be cool yeah a little change of pace and uh i guess on the sci-fi side of things aliens is kind of my big love there
0: wow that's something that you and i share except you have more you have more experience with the, the stories and the novels and even some of the comic books from what I understand. But I'm just more in love with the movies and the artwork. But shared nonetheless. It's still badass.
1: For sure. Yeah. Yeah, that would be up for that for sure.
0: Cool. Did you end up watching Prey?
1: Uh, it doesn't come out till August. August fifth is when that comes out.
0: Oh, I thought you were saying that it was coming out this Friday. New, no,
1: it is August 5th, uh, but yeah, I, it looks awesome. If you haven't seen the trailer for Predator or Prey, um, it's set like 300 years ago-ish, somewhere around there, and it looks pretty pretty wicked.
0: It does look wicked. I was really enjoying it.
1: So yeah, August, August 5th, I think, was the
0: date. So you potentially want to start doing some movie reviews? Or not reviews, yeah. but taking this format and applying that to movies i mean we could give it a shot i don't see why not i think that would be cool yeah i would have a good time doing it yeah yeah maybe we maybe that could be our like youtube thing where we just talk about and maybe like use visual aids to explain yeah i don't know i guess i guess you could call that the standard youtube format but that'd be kind of fun yeah Cool. Well, I guess any anything new with you?
1: Um, just went to a concert last night. It was pretty fucking brutal. Um, it was a lot of fun, um, but a heavy metal show um, headlined by Hometown Heroes after the burial and then uh, Thy Art is Murder played and Currents and another band called Brands of Sacrifice. So it was a uh, It was a heavy show
0: sounds like a pretty pretty dense set yeah yeah i uh i used to work with a guy who uh was friends of the band uh after the burial and he would always like let him use his basement to jam out so nice that was that was really cool because i had just started getting into them And he also liked heavy metal. So I'm just like, hey, have you ever heard these guys? And he's just like, have I heard of them? (laughs) They rock out in my basement like every day. So (laughs) yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, Yeah, that was before they, I think they were just playing. They were still playing local. Like they hadn't quite blown up yet, but so yeah, it's not very often that I like local bands. Sometimes I do, but not enough to like follow them, if that makes sense, or download their albums or anything like that. But After Burial was, was they, they were just that good. Fucking love those albums.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were, it was a lot of fun to see them live again. I saw them. I don't know. It's probably been five, six years since I saw them last.
0: Damn. Yeah. I don't even, I think, I don't even remember the last concert I went to it's been a long time like i don't know if it's just my age or like i'm boring like all i want to do is just like sit where i can watch the band play i don't want to like do any of that moshing stuff i don't want to like sweat my balls off i don't want to have a bunch of like smelly dudes bo like around me or like they're trying to grab my girlfriend's butt or some shit like that i just you know, want to sit up there, eat some popcorn, drink my drink, and watch him play. And just, you know what I mean? So.
1: Yeah, we were right up in it last night, and the body odor was strong. Yeah,
0: I know. I see it like, oh, I would have just thrown up in someone's face. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: It was, it was quite a bit. But it was fun. Had a good time.
0: Yeah. You remember? Uh, did you ever go to Disturbed when they came to Mankato all those years ago, when we were in like high school?
1: Uh, the Weapon as a Two
0: Tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Chevelle, Taproot, at or Loco, or whatever it was.
1: Or music, music as a Weapon tour. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. the first concert I ever went to.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I think it was during Chevelle's set. We uh, I was able to get up and like do the crowd surfing. And then the music stopped, and everybody stopped, <laughs> and I just went plummeting to the floor.
1: <laughs> I had a similar experience at uh, I saw Lamb of God, and the music didn't stop, but like everybody went left, and they pushed me right, and I went right on my head.
0: Oh! Did you get? I mean, did they have like someone come over, or did you just get back up and like, I'm alright?
1: I shook it off. That was all right.
0: No, like, concussion afterwards, though? Like, you were good?
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm still here now, so I, know. I, I don't know. I've, it's, it's possible I could have.
0: Concussions are not fun, man. I like that intro. What do you say we move on to uh, Chapter 12 of Gardens of the Moon here?
1: Yeah, lucky episode thirteen. Uh, what you guys may not know with, with lucky number thirteen is uh, we tried starting recording a few minutes ago and we had some technical difficulties, and uh, so now here we are yeah, doing this is it like again. On our third Zoom
0: meeting. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. For whatever reason, it just did not go smoothly this morning. This Sunday. Oh, it's the twelfth. Oh, June twelfth. God, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I said 13th, 13th episode. Oh, that almost worked out. No, you're 13th right. 13th episode on the 12th day. You are
0: right. This is the 13th episode. It just happens to be the 12th of June, but we're doing the chapter 12 summary because the prologue yeah. gave us an, a leg up. So you're right. It is 13th episode. Yes.
1: Yeah, the date just threw me off. If for whatever reason, I thought the episode was the date. I, I don't know.
0: I got where you're going with that. It still it still explains the technical shortcomings. So whatever. Whatever. Whatever.
1: Well, you ready for me to kick this popsicle stand over here?
0: Do it. Kick it. Kick it hard. All right.
1: So chapter twelve starts out with crew. He's in Mammoth Study Reading, seemingly a little annoyed with the script of the book. It was so long. He thought he'd read his grandmother's name among those listed that he was looking for. Um, I will, this is broken up into kind of a couple different parts here, but I will, I think it's uh, kind of important to, to read this part um, that Krip was reading. So it says, and in calling down to the earth, the God was crippled and so chained in its place in the calling down Many lands were sundered by the gods' fists, and things were born, and things were released. Chained and crippled was this god. Continuing on, this must be a paragraph or two later, but it says, And it bred caution in the unveiling of its powers. The crippled god bred caution, but not well enough. For the power of the earth came to it in the end. Chained was the crippled god, and so chained was it destroyed. And upon this barren plain that imprisoned the crippled god, many gathered to the deed. Hood, gray wanderer of death, was among the gathering, as was Decembre, then Hood's warrior. Though it was here and in this time that Decembray shattered the bonds Hood held upon him, also among the gathering were. And that section ends. And then it continues on here. It says, and among those that came from the vaulted heavens of of silver, the Tisti Andi, dwellers of darkness in the palace before light, black dragons numbering five, and in their league, sailed red-winged Solana, said to dwell among the Tisti Andi in their fangs of darkness, descending from the vaulted heavens of silver. So all those names, everything you read there, uh, It was a little long-winded for uh, Krupp, so that's where he thought maybe he'd read his grandmother's name. Uh, But he wondered how Call had unearthed this info, uh, referring back to the last chapter where he said five black dragons live on Moonspawn. Call was never very scholarly, scholarly, even though he hadn't always been a drunk mess. Someone must have spoken through him, but that answer would need to wait. Krupp hears footsteps from behind. It's Mammoth with T, and he asks if the book has been helpful. Uh, The book within the book that I just read from is called Aladart's Realm Compendium. He says yes, and he's glad today's writers aren't so long-winded. Mammoth asks what he was looking for, and Krupp says his grandmother's name. Mammoth says he won't ask if he's had any luck, and Krupp says luck isn't all it's cracked up to be right now. Krupp returns the favor and asks how Mammoth's writing has been, to which he says slow, and it's not very surprising. Changing the subject, Mammoth asks if Krupp has seen his nephew. Krupp gives a long answer about a time when he promised a man to watch over his nephew because he was young and dumb and thought the dangerous streets were a playground. But yes, he has seen him. Mammoth asks if he seemed odd, and Krupp says yes. He wanted to return some jewelry he stole from a maiden, and he wants an education. What a weirdo. Mamet wants to know where all his nephew's ambition is coming from. He doesn't want him to burn out because there's more to life than petty thievery. Who knew? Uh, I, that's kind of what I thought life was about. He asked Krup about Murillo, and he says he's fine. He says Relic Nom is taking charge of Crocus's safety and seems to be pretty serious about it. He thinks maybe he, seem, he seems he lost in his youth. Sees his lost youth in, sorry, Crocus. Krupp tensed up as he sensed magic. He knew someone was communicating with Mamet, though at that point he did not know who, but he did recognize the warn. Mamet excused himself and said he had research to do and that Beruk wanted to speak immediately. Krupp said he thought he sensed the alchemist. Crip would walk to Baruch. He needed to think. Think about the woman who followed him and killed Shirt and marked Relic as an assassin. Oh, and Crocus saw blood on her blade also. She might be the key to everything.
0: Lots of information there.
1: Yeah, quite a bit
0: happened. So, what's your interpretation of all this, sir? Um, just
1: trying to get answers um you know i it makes me wonder how call knew about these black dragons you know did he maybe he's secretly like a bookworm and you know just this got drunk and blurted some shit out you know i don't know um i did think it was funny when uh Krupp was reading this book and he's just kind of like, oh man, come on, just get to the point. Like, I'm going to see my grandmother's name in here. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, you know, and then, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought here. What's Crocus's is his mammoth's nephew, right? Yes. I'm trying to keep things straight in my head. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know that he, he wants to kind of like change his ways, it
0: seems. Yeah, for, you know, some of the things that we've discussed in, in previous podcasts. Yeah, he seems to he seems to have, like, a change of heart. And I think it's solely because he wants to get in this maiden's pants. Is I think that he's, like, like infatuated in some way, shape, or form.
1: Yeah, I, and I know we'll kind of get to that towards the end of the chapter, too. Um, but I almost wonder if, you know, in if we're going to see kind of like a, a, a change in him where he's going to be like more or less a hero in the story. I don't know. Every, everybody seems kind of gray so far. It doesn't seem like there's
0: like there's too too much
1: to of a definitive, you know, bad side and a, a definitive good side. Everybody's kind of playing for their own interests. Right. Um, what do you see? Like, it seems like he wants to kind of do the right thing.
0: Yeah, almost kind of like he's about ready to give up his, his thievery. And Krupp and Mamet, you know, are definitely starting to see some of these things that are taking place. And, you know, they're essentially just having a conversation about, like, you know, where, where does this go? Why is he doing this? What is his like ultimate motive here? You know, so they're still kind of kept in the dark. They're, they're noticing some things about Crocus, but they're not, they have no idea. They're, they're purely speculating and conversing about that speculation. Um, you know, which, you know, I guess isn't, I mean, that's pretty realistic uh, to me anyway.
1: Yeah. I think so too. What? I also it, it's uh, sorry to no nope. cut you off there. Uh, the you know we're it, we're reading this and we know you know who this woman was that it was sorry. Um, but I also wonder, you know, when when is that path gonna cross and they're gonna figure out who she is or or what she is?
0: Yeah, um, I feel like we're starting to get slivers of that. Um, which we'll talk about later on in the chapter. But I see where you're going with this. And uh I share in that um I guess good anxiety about when when that takes place.
1: Yeah, and then just the right. Go ahead. What's it?
0: Oh, I'm just saying it's just super interesting, and all they did was have a conversation, you know, but you're able to pick up all of these different things that like we've already read and you're able to make these subtle little ties to things that actions and and conversations that have happened previously. I'm just enjoying it.
1: Yeah. Um, The other thing I liked was just the, you know, the passages from the books, you know, that Krupp was reading. I thought that was cool just to kind of get that lore and that info.
0: Right. Which... Um, I know that the last book in the series is titled The Crippled God, so I'm wondering if maybe, I mean, this is his first appearance, or first, you know, time being stated. I'm wondering if, like, this is just the beginning of, I guess, some of the things that might be unveiled about him, so I really couldn't make heads or tails of the saying about him. He kind of seems like the like the the number one god based on what that small description in Aladart's Realm Compendium book that Krupp was reading. So, I, is that kind of what you're thinking, or did you get something else from that?
1: Um, I don't know. You know, I'd have to open it back up and look at it again. But I know we got. It seemed like we got introduced to a few different gods, but he did seem to be the main one. I mean, at least in in that excerpt.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: You know, it was was heavily about the crippled god.
0: Which makes me wonder, like, I mean, the crippled god, I I mean, and I'm trying to say this as, like, PC-friendly as I can, but, I mean, if this god is crippled in some way, shape, or form how is it that he was able to not let that make it a disadvantage? I mean, I would imagine that people, other gods were just like, yeah, you can have the throne go for it. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> like, they're just like, Oh, you're missing, you're missing a leg here.
0: Here you go. Right. Yes. You can be the ruler of uh, all gods. Uh and and again i could very well be way off uh about that but um it just kind of seems maybe 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 it's not necessarily like a physical uh type of death like deformation maybe he's crippled magically in some way shape or form or not I, you know the thought yeah right, <sighs> It's boundless at this point. I mean, we literally have nine more books to go.
1: Yeah, we got a little ways to go.
0: Just a little. It'll take us about, what, two and a half, three years to go through all this. But it's good material. I think it's worth it.
1: We'll have fun doing it.
0: That's what I'm saying. Uh, The whole call. I know that it was said that he was never scholarly. But, and he hadn't always been a drunk mess. but I think that this goes back to, and this is what maybe more makes me believe that he at one point was not necessarily scholarly, but had ties to um, richness or, you know, the avant-garde of Jerusalem. Uh, at one point in time, which brings me back and I, and I, you may not remember this conversation, but I had theorized many episodes ago that call was, uh, that one lady's ex-husband. I forget her name.
1: I do. Yeah. I do remember that.
0: Yeah. So this is what makes me think that because he blurted that out, that he was privy to some type of, you know, council member knowledge even though he's not scholarly i mean he may not have been in pursuit of education but that doesn't mean he wasn't surrounded by those types of conversations you know right but yeah that that's just that real quick uh my thoughts on call I don't, I don't i mean he seems to be like a a really like that wise drunk character, you know, but I, I I don't know. I like him so far, even though he really hasn't had much to do with the story (laughs) outside of being a belligerent idiot.
1: Hey, I mean, somebody has to be that guy.
0: Right. And who doesn't like seeing their drunk friend fall out of a car? I mean, (laughs) that's kind of what I envision as calls that like that friend that is so drunk, That they're passed out on the door, and when you go to open it, they just fall out like a sack of potatoes, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, anything
1: else you want to add there?
0: Not at all. I guess, yeah, with that, we can move on to the next section here.
1: Sounds good. Sweet.
0: So, Crone was waiting for Baruch, agitatedly hopping around with singed feathers. She did not like waiting. A door to the, su- the study opened and Baruch strode through. Crone is able to smell the thick magic trailing behind Baruch. Crone, without delay, explains to Baruch that Anomander Rake wishes for Crone to relate her tale of her encounter on the Rivie Plain to the alchemist. Baruch approaches the map table to which Crone is standing on. I don't know what it is about Crone and map tables. Is it just like it does she just like map tables or does she just like to be on maybe the same eye level I just thought that that was kind of a common a common theme with Krone but um she observes that she had or Baruch observes that she has been injured and asks her if she needs help she denies this and, or rather, shrugs it off. Angrily, she relates the story of her encounter with the asshole puppet on the Rivi Plain. She then begins to tell Baruch that it's chasing another power, one that she and her great ravens simply could not get near. But it is also of immense power. She relays to Baruch that they are headed towards something within the good Roby Hills. She tells him that her commander asks him why. Baruch's face has no color left. Taking a seat, he explains that the Malazan Empire seeks something it, it cannot hope to control. Crone asks what is buried there. With a lash of impatience, Baruch explains that, is a, that it is the barrel of the Jaghut tyrant, which we know was put there by the Jaghut themselves. He begins to tell Crone that he knows a one man who has gathered all available knowledge on the subject, and that he must confer with him. Baruch also explains to Crone that he knows the precise location, and that it's a stone with a weathered top and many holes dug around it. The stone is 20 feet deep, but it is not the entrance, it's just the beginning. Crone asks where the entrance is, and Baruch says that he cannot reveal that information. Crone kind of fucking flips her shit at this, and then is iner- and then interrupted during her tangent, and Baruch explains that Anomander's intentions are far from clear. He explains that what is in that borrow could level a city, and it was his duty to make sure that it didn't happen. Crone brings this back around to the two groups converging at the Barrow. She asks Baruch why he assumes they are both Malazan. Baruch explains that they want to take the city, and the information of the Barrow is not a mystery to scholars of the many cities the Malazan campaign has overtaken. Crone was already in a dark mood, and this did not help. She snaps at Baruch and tells him that he will be kept informed on the activity on the Rivie Plain, but blames Baruch for the lack of assistance from Rake's alliances. Baruch tells Crone to tell Rake that he shares the present dissatisfaction. Crone's snarky reply was that Rake was busy with his side of things, to which Baruch kind of asks, "Well, what is that? Crimply said in due time, alchemist, and departed the window. Angrily using magic to shut the window violently, Baruch strides to the mantel place and pours himself some wine. We, the reader, are informed of Baruch's need to conjure a demon for spying purposes. He opens his warrant and says, Mammoth, I need you. He smiled as the scene appeared in his head. He saw Krupp there as well and requested his his presence as well. Woo!
1: so definitely uh ties right into the first section there
0: right yes um so my only guess is that you know from the first section mammoth has been tasked with essentially getting all the information that he can about the Jaghut tyrant its location potentially
1: right yeah that must be the research he needs to do right
0: right which from what I remember from the first section, is Krupp on his way out listens to Mamet, uh in his study, and all he hears is, like, paper ruffling, which gives Krupp, like, a sense of relief because he's not going through what he just read, is what I gathered from that. Yeah, that makes sense. But... Um, and you might get a kick out of this because this was just my first thought. But, um, as Crone smelled the thick magic trailing behind Baruch, Baruch is coming out, but i'm I'm a guess I'm guessing that maybe he was naked because Crone observes that he is putting on his robe. and then she makes the, like the thought in her head covering his considerable bulk. So, my question is: Like, was Baruch in there naked or something? Does he use his magic to masturbate, or was she simply talking about his stature or build? Like, Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure. I guess you know. I mean, it could. I mean, conjure up a magical flesh rocket, like (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Hey, I mean in this world anything is possible right you very well could have been you know rubbing the one-eyed clown
1: you do what you gotta do i guess
0: right magically how great would that be
1: <laughs> hard to say it could go really wrong also
0: right right it could be hard to control at first
1: I don't know how much I want to dwell on that.
0: Okay. All right. We'll <laughs> move on from my magical masturbation.
1: Now I know what you think about.
0: Does <laughs> this come as a surprise to you? Um, not really. Okay. All right. Well, then. Cool. Magically masturbating. It's a thing. Cool. but yeah uh did you have any thoughts or uh anything that stood out to you in this section just
1: that it seems like anamander and uh what's the other baruch guy's name
0: no not Um, Baruch. what's that Caladan brood
1: yes they seem to, I, I don't know if they're at, like, odds with each other, but they don't, it kind of seems like they don't really want to work together a whole lot. I kind of get the feeling.
0: Is there something in this section that makes you feel that way? Or think that way?
1: Just that, you know, cause, well, because one of them said that they wanted help from the other, I thought.
0: Um. I think that, I think that. Krohn was specifically making uh, a uh, a jab at Baruch and his lack of assistance. And then I didn't summarize that, but Baruch was just like, the first meeting I had with Anamander didn't establish any type of an alliance. We simply just talked about it, you know, but like nothing was ever like set in stone. So I think that Anamander and Krohn are either trying to, like, manipulate, or they are maybe too ahead of themselves and are expecting more, but really haven't taken the time to, like, establish boundaries. But I see where you're going with the Kaladan brood thing, though, and that very well could be his other plans, you know? But, again, Crone is also, like... She's working for Caladan, Brood, and Anamander. So, what is she trying to gain from all this?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It seems like I get the feeling she's like trying to play them both.
0: Yeah, I think there's more there. I think you're onto something. And I think Crone is the the uh, the common denominator here.
1: Yeah, I don't know if she's trying to like sow bad feelings between. You know, start some shit up. I don't know, but it, just, it seems weird to me. Something, I, I don't know.
0: I get I that. Yeah,
1: as bad feelings, but it gives me a weird like vibe.
0: Yeah, like that's just not sitting right. Yeah. Okay, I feel you there. I feel. You. I think it. I think it was really cool how Baruch was really. You just get a sense of like how knowledgeable or maybe experienced he really is because. He isn't worried about two potentially malazan parties converging at the Barrow, because he already deduces based just simply from crone's recollection of events that one of them was hiding or popping in and out of the warren which tells baruch that they are hiding from the other which means that there might be some type of discourse or um there must be some type of rife within the malazan empire is what he tells chrome which i just thought that was like that was super perceptive of him because we as the readers we know we know that they're not they are not they are malazan but they are not you know, they're they're not on the same side, so to speak. They both have different goals, which brings it back around to Asshole Puppet, right? I know that there was a couple of, of chapters where, you know, in his crazy, mad conversations with different characters like Sale and, and Paran, you know, we never really understood what his motives are, but... I feel like it kind of comes clearer in this section, uh, subtly rather, because we knew we always knew that he was headed towards Yerushalayim, but it sounds like he's chasing the Talanimass. mass. It sounds like he is trying to destroy the Tolanim mass. So I don't know if that necessarily makes him. I guess I'm second guessing it a little bit it doesn't necessarily make him uh I don't think that he's gone rogue or wild I think that he's simply just trying to take out the Talani mass so that everyone else can take out Lauren
1: okay I can I think I could get on board with that that's a good thought
0: Let me just ramble
1: I don't know what I mean I it, I mean from what we know of them so far I, I don't it doesn't seem like they're going to be easy to take out, so it's going to have to be something fairly like powerful,
0: right? And the Talani Mass, as we read that chapter on the Rivie Plain, um, was unable to influence the Warren, the Chaos warrant. because you know even Tua was questioning, like, yeah, I don't know why, I don't know why my Warren's not affecting it.
1: It's a good thought. I think you're onto something.
0: I just like how more and more kind of becomes like hitting the surface a little bit as we're getting into this book. Like, and, and and I know that a lot of the big feedback is that, yeah, he does kind of throw you in without really hand-holding you. You just kind of need to to read and find out, really. But I'm kind of appreciating that approach because like, I feel like it makes, it makes me remember it a lot more. And I guess my only advice to those that are potentially frustrated with this book right now is to just, just keep reading, like make some notes if you need to make some notes, or if that's what you need to do to kind of like, come back to the things that are, you're confused about, but it does kind of seem like everything is falling into place. Yeah, there are some new things that are being introduced. But I feel like it's much more easier to understand or comprehend based on the fact that, like, you knowing that you just, like, now that you're used to the book, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't feel like it's too, I mean, there's definitely a lot going on, but it's, I don't feel, like, too overwhelmed or anything. I mean, it's not like we've got, 83 characters we have to keep track of right now. We've got you know kind of a two mm-hmm. seems like two groups of characters that we have kind of going on right now, but um so far I haven't gotten terribly frustrated yet reading this. But it's also been like, yeah, you kind of wonder what's going on a little bit.
0: Yeah. This this section was just it was very tension filled. Like Baruch Baruch is uh frustrated because he's being talked to like an idiot. Corona is just kind of this irrational bomb of anger, which I can understand. I mean, she just had a pretty shitty encounter over the Rivi plane. She's trying to make sense of it. So I can only imagine where her headspace is, which is confusion and like anger. Like I just lost a bunch of my quote unquote kids to this fucking Power that I haven't seen in millennia, you know. So I can understand why she's maybe a little snappy, but yeah, it was just a very tension filled section.
1: Yeah, there was, and yeah, just but they kind of repeated over and over that Crone was cranky or irritated and, you know, this or that. I felt like that was kind of beat home a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think it's just supposed to. You know, things aren't going smoothly for this alliance either, you know? So, like, I just... I just not at the moment anyways. Right. I wonder who's going to slip up first. Is kind of I don't know. Where I'm curious about, but... But, yeah. Those are kind of my only thoughts about this section. I don't know if you have more to add or not. Uh, I don't think so. Well do you want?
1: Well, I guess the only thing that's kind of like, you know, this this stone is it's not the entrance, it's just the beginning is kind of a, a cool passage. I don't really know what to make of that, but
0: Yeah, my guess is that there's magic somehow involved in that, and that I know that, this. yeah, I can't believe I didn't even think about, to talk about that the entrance to the barrow is not an entrance, but a beginning It is cool, it is cool. And um, that's also another part that I'm super curious to, to learn more about. Like, I'm almost kind of wondering now that I'm like thinking about it, if the stone, which we know isn't the entrance, is just the beginning, but I guess I just go back to like chapter, or not chapter two, but book two of The Wheel of Time uh with rand and the portal stones like you know if it's just maybe another realm uh but the stone is just kind of where you begin but yeah i don't yeah i guess it's just where as i'm thinking about it where my thoughts are going but um super curious as to see as to where that goes let's, let's
1: have to find out if
0: uh, if you're ready i'm ready to move on to like the last section of the chapter Uh, I'm sorry you didn't get to do this one because I know you really loved it. It's okay. We can talk about it a lot.
1: (laughs) All right. So picture Buzz Lightyear and Woody like that meme. Hounds, hounds everywhere. The big white one who approached Quick Ben, he knew as blind. Mate to Baron and mother of gear. Quick Ben is not there to fight. He wants to see their master. A growl behind him freezes Quickben. He looks down and sees Baron. Behind him, another growl. He sees Sean. He asks if it's found its prey or is there as an escort. Brian rose up on all fours and was level with Quickben's chest. So, I mean, that's pretty fucking big dog. Like... I don't know how tall Quick Ben is, but I guess, you know, if you assume he's six feet tall, and if that dog just standing up is up to his chest, that thing's like freaking huge. So he followed the hounds, and the land slowly changed. Uh, I probably didn't do a very good job explaining this. There's kind of a lot to it, but um, it was hard to make out the details as they slipped in and out, and sometimes slightly changed. Another hound joined, one eye yellow and another blue, and was the largest of the group, Doan. First born to pack, leader rude, and mate Palak. Doan trotted with blind and then bounded forward. He saw their destination, Shadowkeep, and the temples for Shadow throne. It looked like a chunk of black glass. There were no doors, no windows, no drawbridge as far as Quickbend could tell. As they arrived, Blind just walked right through the wall. Quickben kind of flipped out. Baran basically forced him through a la platform nine and three quarter style from Harry Potter. He was in a hallway that was very plain. Some doors uh, opened on their own as Blind and Dawn sat on either side Quickbent entered a domed room with a simple obsidian throne in a room approximately 400 feet long. He was able to determine that uh, there was torches. Torches is the word I'm looking for. Uh, Like every 10 feet and he saw 40 of them. So unless I did my math wrong and it's 4,000 feet long, I don't know. I'm not very good at math in my head. Uh, he thought the throne was empty, but he saw a figure on it that looked nearly translucent and vaguely human. He could tell the gods stared him down, and he was barely able to hold himself together. Shadow Throne spoke to Quick Ben and said Sean told him that he knew the hounds by name. Quick Ben says he used to be an acolyte in this temple. Shadow Throne asks if he thinks it's wise to admit that, and he, he wants to know what his priests now teach. To begin upon the path of Shadow and then to leave it is rewarded by the rope, meaning he is marked for assassination by all who follow his Shadow Throne's way. Quick Ben wants to play, let's make a deal. Shadow Throne is intrigued, so he keeps his dogs at bay and asks if Quick Ben knows why he just saved his life. Quick Ben says yes. Shadow Throne says Sean wants, wants him to explain why. Quick Ben says, because Shadow Throne loves deals. Shadow Throne says to speak while he can. Quickben needs to ask a question first. And it's a pretty big one. Does gear still live? That is a hell of a question, says Shadow Throne. He's done something very few have done. But yes, gear lives. Quickben says he will give Shadow Throne the one who is responsible for the damage to gear. Shadow Throne says how? He belongs to Open. Quickben says no, not him, but the one who led Gear to the chamber, the one who tried to take Gear's soul. Shadow Throne asks what he wants in return. Quickben says his life. The rope's reward was removed from him. Shadow Throne asks if there's anything else. Yes there is. Quickben will choose the time and place, otherwise he will escape the hounds through his chaos worn. Only Quickben can prevent that and forest fires. And that's why it has to be in the deal. All Shadow Throne has to do is have the Hounds ready. Shadow Throne says he's planned this well. He Can't figure out how to kill the creature and Quickben, And he wants to know how he'll call upon him when the time is right. He assumes he's not coming back to his realm. Quickben says no, but he guarantees he will contact him, but just cannot say how. Shadow Throne says, What if he kills him now? QuickBen says, To answer that, Shadow Throne needs to answer the first part of the proposal. Sean growled, and Shadow Throne did nothing. QuickBen says he knows Shadow Throne will try to betray him, try to find weakness, but he needs his word that he'll hold his end of the deal. If he does that, he'll answer the question. Shadow Throne is excited for this duel and only regrets that QuickBen left his service because he would have risen far. The hounds will be ready, so why shouldn't he kill him? QuickBen says Shadow Throne has already spoke the answer. Shadow Throne will not have him because he can't have him. He did rise far within the ranks. QuickBen retreated into his chaos warn and fell back. And as he fell back into his warn, he heard Shadow Throne yell, It is you, Dilat, you shape shifting bastard! QuickBen had done it again. He was out of reach.
0: Ah, oh, dude. And I know that we talked a little bit through text about this, but this fucking section had my mouth, like, agape. Like, I was not expecting any of that.
1: Yeah. I Now, yeah, I don't know, like... So we've heard, you know, a few characters, you know, are pretty old in this, so now I wonder, like, how old is Quick Ben? You know, and he's he's pulled a Quick One... uh, over Shadow Throne again, so it sounds like this isn't the first time, you know? How does he keep managing to fool them?
0: So is this why they call him Quick Ben? must be. I mean, I feel like you you said something there and maybe didn't even realize that you had said it, but you said that he he had pulled a Quick one on them again. So, I'm wondering, wow, that's crazy. But, and, I mean, I kind of knew that something was up, Because, like, he knew all of the Hound's name. Like, I was super confused about that at first. I was just like, how the fuck do you know these guys' names? You know? So, I I don't... Did you get that sense at all? Or, like, when you first started reading the section, do you remember how you were feeling as you were reading it?
1: Yeah, I thought it was kind of odd that he, you know, knew all these Hound's name. But I thought, well, maybe he's just, you know, you know, knows his history and shit. So maybe it wasn't that weird, but... And then we find out that, you know, he was... You know, in this church, or whatever you want to call it.
0: This, like, bachelor pad with nothing in it. What? The bed? Ba- like, I just always imagine, like, like a single, a single man, you know, like a bachelor pad, where there's literally just, like, a bed on the floor and a TV. You know, just... empty like devoid of any type of decoration or i guess that's just where i i go but more on a grand a grand scale of like slate black and yeah yeah just this empty castle with no tapestries no like wall hangings no like intricately carved stonework or anything like that just a blank black slate of Whatever, obsidian is I think what they they described it. Just a guy and his dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I suppose, you know, that could be the equivalent of, you know, the cat lady, right? Yeah. But uh you took Shadow Throne as a manace, right? I didn't
1: even really think about that when I was reading this section, I guess.
0: Okay. Because from what I understand, he is the god of Shadow Throne. The god that is Shadow Throne? Yeah. Or the king. Maybe not the god, but the king. I'd have to look at the back again. But it's one of the two. It's either the god or the king. So.
1: Well, I do remember talking about that before.
0: Yeah. But I just thought it was interesting that Erickson chose not to write his name in. Why? Is what I'm questioning. We already know who Amanis is. So why not say Amanis? And it's purely because he wants us to he wants us to question it, but why?
1: I do not have an idea on that reason. No worries. do you?
0: no, i I can't. There's just so many possibilities that I can't pinpoint like one direction or the other. But I do think that it's interesting that uh, he's been marked for assassination, but now he no longer is marked for assassination.
1: Well, that was so you made that part of his deal.
0: Right. But here's where maybe we add in a little bit of confusion. And I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but is this the whole motivation going all the way back to chapter one? Is this the whole motivation for possessing Sari and using her to get close to Whiskey Jack because she had an assassination contract against Quick Bend? But if you dive into that a little deeper, how did they know that he was Dalot in disguise? I feel like that makes sense as to like the whole motivation as to why could uh, you know Cotillion and Amanus or did what they did, right? Like that's never really been answered for us. But at the same time, it's just like how did he know? Clearly, he didn't know that he was Dalot in disguise because, like, Shadow Thrones King. Or the god of Shadow Throne that QuickBen had this interaction with, had no idea based on the way that he reacted. So if they didn't know who he was, how would he be able to track him down? But at the same time, it makes a lot of sense as to how or why they possess sorry. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, does that sound like rational or not really?
1: I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't think. I think it's, I don't think he recognized him, obviously, as DeLot, you know, by his reaction at the end of the chapter or the section. Um,
0: yeah, I guess I'm not really sure. I mean, fair enough. I mean, it's just, but you you see the connection though, right? Like, that I'm trying to visualize. You see what I'm Yeah. potentially trying to explain?
1: Yeah. No, I, I see that, but I, I just... Making sense... I don't
0: know, almost like it's making it's making it not make sense. Like, it makes sense, but it doesn't at the same time. <laughs> I guess that's kind of a good way to put it. You know, like, you can understand the relationship and how it's a potential reality. But at the end of the day, like, that just makes it more confusing. Oh, yeah, it does a little bit. <laughs> so, but I just think it's cool that, like, you know, I mean, it, it hasn't really... And it's not even really something that I've thought about because... Again, we don't really get a lot from Shadow Throne's perspective, um, or even just some of the interactions between their members, a lot. But uh, we don't really understand, we don't really know why they were motivated to do, you know, as far as like possessing Sari. We know that the Ikito Khan massacre was to draw warn, right? Or kind of like send them down some type of distraction we know that much but that's pretty much it yeah i
1: don't i guess i mean it's like you're you know saying i i see the connection you're trying to make but yeah i don't know how unless we get some more information revealed i don't know how you know back to the beginning that connection gets made i guess right. i don't know i'm jumping around a little bit but i'm kind of getting words to it
0: <laughs> makes sense yeah it's all good it's just it was just like that was just one of my original thoughts that i had that i wanted to write down because and i still can't make sense of it you know um i've read the chapter a few times and every time i read it i'm like okay yeah it's still it's still not as clear as i would like it to be but i can definitely see how uh one could potentially, you know, draw back to that very first chapter to be like, I wonder if this is, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, but, um, yeah, we got our, uh, we got our confirmation, right? That gear is indeed not dead. I think you called that the whole time. So,
1: yeah, I didn't really feel like he was dead. And yes, on Hounds, um, how many, how many do we have named now?
0: Six or seven? Six or seven. And I think there are seven of them.
1: I just wondered if we, not all of them were present, but I, were they all named then? We got Gear, uh, Bran, Blind, Don, Bran, Shan, Roan, Don't, Pallock, Rude, Pallock. Yeah. That's seven. Yeah. Was it, Did it say somewhere that there were seven? I guess I don't remember that.
0: I much. want to say the very beginning of the the book, when he summons, he summons them to attack or massacre all of the troops. I think it was said that there were seven sound towns in total. Okay.
1: Well, at least I mean now we have. They've been named, and so been a few of them are there. Where are the other ones at?
0: Right. Yeah, and is there like some type of infirmary for dogs? Like where is You know? Just don't running around somewhere still. Right. And why gear? Why not why not one of the others? Have you I mean, have you ever thought of that? Like why gear specifically? I mean, maybe they said uh, why know. in those chapters, but I feel like Shan is much more badass.
1: Yeah, well, I wonder which, which one you think is like the top dog. Uh,
0: I think Shan is because he seems to be the one that, like, you know, sits next to the right hand of the god of Shadow Throne, as he's the one who essentially, you know, laid at the feet of the die or the, you know, the deus, Dios.
1: That may, yeah, that makes sense. I wasn't really sure which one I thought was like, you know,
0: well, it does say, "Rude is the pack leader." Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he like he's the biggest and the baddest, though, right? Like he can maybe just be more cunning, or yeah, I don't, I don't know, intelligent maybe. But I feel like Shan is the the badass. Yeah, it's just a it's a badass name too, right? Yes, Sean. (laughs) Sean. But yeah, I yeah I, I liked I really loved that that section, and it was just I just remember being so like, oh my god, what the fuck just happened? You know, and now we've got this whole backstory that you know you think you know a guy, and then he ends up being. Not the guy, but a shapeshifter of the guy. So it's just like like who the fuck is this guy? How, and I know that like in the next couple of sections, I think he does reveal how high up he got. Um, which I think has some kind of correlation to Yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah, it's just like I know Shadow Throne is a fairly young realm, comparatively. So, like, why did he leave? Why did he decide to screw him over again? What other instances? Like, there's just so many more questions. We'll just have to what, Derek? Read and find out. That's right. That's right.
1: I did like his, uh, you know, it seemed like he put a lot of thought into this deal, you know, that he was making.
0: Right. Right. And if you recall, he did discuss this with Kalam and Whiskey Jack.
1: Um, I don't know if I remember that.
0: Because I remember when they were in the woods or they were on the edge or the you know, the shore of Jerugistan. And then Quick Ben comes back from his meeting with Hairlock and the Chaos Warren. And then they all kind of, like, huddle around and, like, here's the plan.
1: Vaguely, I guess. I don't remember the specifics on it.
0: Okay. Well, maybe they didn't or maybe they didn't. But I'm pretty sure that in this section, like, there was a brief sentence or two where Quick Ben was just like, yeah, you know, even Whiskey Jack was hesitant about this plan. Or, you know, something along the lines of that. Which... So that means that Kalam and Whiskey Jack know who Quick Ben really is, right? Oh
1: yeah. I think that. I mean, that makes sense to me. Uh, I mean, I would think they would know. In my head, I think I I've always kind of thought that.
0: You always kind of thought what that there was something about Quick Ben.
1: Well, no. After reading this, you know, and he says he's you know who he is. Like, I had the idea in my head that Whiskey Jack knew. Like, they must know. But maybe it doesn't. I don't know.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you remember? You remember when they like in the Siege of Pale when they all first like approached Tattersail when they were essentially soul shifting Hairlock into asshole puppet. And I don't know. I just remember reading that that chapter and there being like a sense of like wonder. About who these characters are because they didn't really seem too excited to introduce themselves or who they were to Tattersail. I remember feeling that way, and I probably could be way off, but I always just thought it was because the way I felt was because they were new, they were new characters. But now I'm I I am starting to tie back into like, yeah, Kalama Whiskey Jack know who Quick Ben is, and they're totally just keeping it a secret so that nobody can figure out that he has ties to shadow throne. I feel like that's a a fair, a fair assessment. What do you think? I think it is. Cool. I just like how more frequently things are tying back into previous chapters.
1: Yeah. It's always fun to get that payoff. And you know, if, if we had a hunch or something and then it's, you know, either right or wrong.
0: It's a good feeling.
1: <laughs> yes, it is.
0: I'm I'm marveling at the section, but I feel like we probably should move on to the next one. What do you say? Yeah, I'm ready for you to take it. Sweet. So we come back to Krupp entering Baruch's study. He sits down and takes his handkerchief out and wipes his forehead. Baruch complains about Krupp's tardiness in getting there. Quickly dismissing this complaint, Baruch asks Krupp if he has any news for him. Krupp explains that the coin bearer continues to be protected, but as far as the Malazan infiltrators, he was trying, or he was having no luck, which is a total fucking lie. We know that as the reader. He does say that he is to convey a message to Baruch, and while strange in its delivery and message, Baruch... Having no patience, and Krupp able to identify that Baruch was in a salty mood, Uh, Baruch tells Krupp to get on with it. Krupp begins to explain that the message comes for Baruch personally from the eel. Baruch has a moment of verbal disbelief as to how the eel knows who his agents are. His gaze ends up on Krupp, and he growls that he is waiting. Krupp quickly tells Baruch the following. Look to the streets to find what you seek. Krupp follows this up by explaining that this news was delivered to him by the smallest of children. With Baruch's foul mood, Krupp expected Baruch to not believe such exaggeration, but Baruch just stared into the fireplace. After some time, Baruch asks Krupp what he knows of the eel. Krupp goes on to tell Baruch that he knows little, but also rants on about the eel's influence with rumors and speculates that the eel's agents must number in the hundreds, all devoted to protecting Jerudistan. Krupp also states that even Turban Ore has been said to be looking for the eel. Krupp could tell... This didn't relieve or help Baruch's mood. Baruch finally tells Krupp that he has an assignment for him. He must gather Marilio, Ralik, Call, and the Coin Bearer to keep the Coin Bearer out of reach of anyone and that he is not to risk falling into the wrong hands. The last thing they need is for gods to be battling on the mortal plane. Krupp asks what it is that they will be doing. Baruch explains that he is not quite sure, but asks Krupp to observe, only observe and nothing else, but to look for potentially foreign work parties digging here and there. Krupp quickly chirps in like road repair crew. Baruch frowns at this and tells Krupp that he will be sent to the Gadrobi Hills and to wait there until further instructions are sent to him. Krupp reassures Baruch that none will find him and his comrades, and asks when he should leave. Baruch explains that he will leave soon, and that he will send Krupp notice a day beforehand. Krupp explains that Ralek has been previously preoccupied, and with luck, he should be available. Baruch tells Krupp to make sure that Ralek should be included, because if for any reason the coin bearer's influence turns against them, to have him killed. Krupp assures Baruch that this possibility has already been discussed. Krupp then leaves in the silence that follows. Woofta. What are your thoughts on that one? So,
1: I know I had previously thought that Krupp was the eel, and I, now I'm not so Sure. Um, You know, I wonder if he's just kind of talking to throw things off or if he's just actually not. I still kind of feel like he is, but I I don't know.
0: I, I see where I see where you're going, but I think for the fact alone that he couldn't, he simply just could have said that he didn't know. But he goes on and, and I feel like, again, I didn't summarize it adequately. To do it justice, but I feel like it's an entire paragraph of him speculating. But is he actually speculating or does he know because he is the eel?
1: Right, that's kinda of like my hang up.
0: Yeah. I don't know what you mean by hey Siri, I see where you're going, but I think for the fact that loan that he couldn't, he simply just could have said that he You hear know. this dude, right? <laughs> and he goes on in. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, get Siri. Inadequately to do it. Justice, but I feel like it's an entire paper paragraph of him speculating. But is he actually speculating, or does he know? Because he doesn't <laughs> he's not even no getting that this right, <laughs> that Siri. Out field. dude. I didn't even say hey Siri, man, you suck. Wow, cool. Um, enjoy wow. that, everybody. Yes, have fun with that. I will leave that in as. A blooper of some kind but ah wow (laughs) i will have to leave my phone somewhere else when we record because apparently (laughs) the words a lot wow she even picked that up (laughs) i'm sorry that was that was funny that was funny okay cool all right um but yeah i i think that i think i still i I'm in agreement with you. I think that Krupp is is the eel dude. So, because, and this will maybe tie it back in, but you know how he makes the comment about this news was delivered to him by the smallest of children? Yes. What yes. happened in his dream? Right? Smallest of children, like maybe a brand new baby-born baby. Born baby?
1: Oh yeah, that's right. I was I was think I was thinking of uh who was it that I can't remember who it was but they saw the footprints walking off or whatever. That's where my head was. But yeah, now I remember, yeah, they saw it with in his dream, yeah, with uh the IMS and uh the Ruby pregnant woman and the, the fox tattoo on the belly and all that.
0: Right, right, yeah, yeah. But I guess I don't I mean, and maybe maybe you can fill in the blanks here but i don't recall there being a message for baruch in corrupts last dream that was like even subtly hinted at is that just me i guess i don't remember anything so yeah i don't and maybe it literally was the smallest of children that sent the i, I mean I, I don't think that this actually happened I don't think that a child told him, because our theory, or where I'm going to go with this, is that Krupp is really the eel. So I think that he's just maybe making up something that would sound believable, but then ends up questioning it because it's maybe too exaggerated. So I don't think that, you know, the eel sent a message to Krupp. I think that Krupp is making this up. Based on the events of his dream, if that makes sense,
1: yeah, I mean, he's kind of covering his tracks a little bit to keep hidden who he is.
0: Right, right, yeah is is where I'm going with that, which I think further makes the case that he is the eel.
1: yeah, I just I don't know if it's one of those things like to try to throw you off or not, but it, it kind of is for me.
0: Right. And also, and there's something subtle that I have just noticed with Krupp is that he does a lot with his handkerchief. And I think that in this particular section, there was like the handkerchief was described as Krupp uses it to like wipe his face, but then folds it neatly in his lap and then unfolds it to wipe his brow again. And I don't know if that is, I think that it's the author's way of explaining that Krupp is anxious. He's anxious, which tells me that maybe he is being called because he's been figured out or you, you know what I mean? Like if you're, if you call, I just go back to like when I would cause trouble in school right and like nobody knew it was me but i was still in the principal's office being questioned about it just like that type of scenario you know where like i'm anxious like did i get figured out blah, 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 blah. so so that's kind of what like i'm imagining this section is being it's like krupp is super anxious and in that anxious space He's being more exa- exaggerative than he needs to be, which he's doubting himself because Baruch may be onto him. Yeah, I, d- I don't know. I could be completely fucking off, but like that's just where I'm going with that.
1: I think that's a really good pickup because I didn't pick that up.
0: So because like every time we are with Baruch and Krupp, he's playing with his handkerchief. But we don't really get a sense of that in you know when he's just hanging out at the Phoenix Inn, right? We don't ever see him wipe sweat from his handkerchief. He's
1: usually Yeah, eating. you're you're right. I'd, had, i had that I hadn't picked up on that. But now I'm gonna watch out for it.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean it's a small thing. And again, I could be, you know, way off, but that's just something that I've noticed. Is that it only seems to be that when he's nervous about something he's profusely sweating which i always just assumed it was because he's described himself as kind of pudgy so but i didn't notice it anywhere else either but i I guess most
1: people are you know they sweat when they get nervous that's pretty normal
0: right yeah and i think that's just kind of author's way of telling us that there's something more to crop that that he's not revealing yet And I think that, again, it goes back to the fact that he is the eel and he's just trying his best not to get discovered.
1: Well, I hope we get that payoff pretty soon because I want to know who it is.
0: Yeah, all right. What if it's never figured out, Derek?
1: Then I'm sure we could probably do some internet searching.
0: I agree. I hope that the eel is something that is revealed. But, you know, it could very well be like, Other books I have read where things have been actions have been taken, but nothing was revealed. Those actions. And you're just you're left in mystery to this day. True. Um, I guess the only other thing that like I really picked out from this is why would he lie? Why would he decide to lie about the fact that he knows of the Malazan infiltrators? Is it because he feels like he's more able to deal with it? Or does he have something else up his sleeve? You know what I mean? Like, why would you lie to Rook?
1: Because he's got to. He's
0: got to protect his information. But he's right? the one. He's the one who had his information. He's the one who had the encounter with, um, you know, the and curse, right?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I th- he's. He's he's like an eel. He's slimy. I don't know. He's got he's got something going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll just have to read and find out, right?
1: <laughs> it's all we can do, man. It's all we can do. That's
0: all we can do. But, yeah, I don't know. Did you have any other thoughts on this section? Because those were literally all it is. and I, and I feel like I feel like the the information on, you know his task and what Baruch wants him to do is pretty straightforward. Um, but, yeah, I just think the section was really about. You know, maybe potentially subtly revealing that Krupp is more than what he seems,
1: yeah, I think they're you know i I mean, assuming we're right and Krupp is the eel, I think you know they've dropped a few hints, and i I think we picked up on them, but you know, like you said too, I mean we could be way off also,
0: right, yeah. But, I mean, did you have anything else that you wanted to add about, like, their uh, their assignment and that they're to observe in the Gundroby Hills? Uh, anything along those lines?
1: Um, I don't think there's anything that I need to add. I think you covered it well.
0: Sweet. Well, uh, what do you say we take it to our next section here? Sure.
1: So we'll pick back up with... Quick Ben. So, less than an hour after Quick Ben left for Shadow Throne's realm, his soul returned to his body. Kalam gave some space and waited for his friend to come too. He didn't know what to expect, so he had his hands on his knives ready just in case things went poorly and he attacked when he woke up. Quick Ben opened his eyes and Kalam smiled. He asked if he was done and if it was successful. Quick Ben said yes to both. How crazy is that? Quick Ben says he realized who he was just as he left and he should have heard him scream. Clom asks if he is surprised since he turned his back on Shadow Throne. Quick Ben says it should happen more frequently with no temples or priests. The gods couldn't meddle in the mortal realm. And that sounds like paradise. They hear a voice behind them. It's Sorry. She says perhaps it would be paradise, and she wishes she heard the whole conversation. They want to know what she's doing here and how she found them. She ignored the questions and tells them she found an assassin, and she marked him, and he's at the Phoenix Inn and wonders if they're interested. And then she says that Whiskey Jack sent her. They call her out on that because Whiskey Jack doesn't know where they are. She relents and says she sensed QuickBen's power. It is quite distinct. QuickBen is surprised since he had a shield around it. Sari explains her surprise as well. She wasn't expecting to be able to sense it, and there must be a crack in it, a crack in the shield. QuickBen knew crack wasn't the right word. She had found him or them because she was an agent of the rope. Kalama moved closer to QuickBen and put a hand on his shoulder. Kind of like keep him from doing anything stupid. Quickben says she's right. A crack formed and she has a talent. A talent with a capital T. She had found what they were looking for, so they should act on it. Sorry says they'll know the man when they see him. She thinks he's making it look obvious what he is. Maybe the guild is expecting them, but they just need to find the Phoenix inn. They ask where she will be, and Sari says she'll be completing a mission for Whiskey Jack and leaves. Quickben says she's exactly what they thought she was. Kalana says that if he attacked her, then he'd be dead. Quickben says for certain, but they'll take her out when the time is right, for now they need her. They decide to go to the Phoenix Inn as they need a drink. So what did you think?
0: I mean, I remember when I read this section, I, for whatever reason, when Sorry first introduces herself into this conversation, I didn't recognize her as, as somebody that uh, they are working with. Like, it took me until she was talking about the Assassin's Guild to recognize that, no, she wasn't a threat in this particular instance that she was just there relaying information. But that also begs the question as to like, why was she following them? How, and I think that you and I will talk about this, but how does she know where they are? Right? Like we know that she was at the Phoenix Inn. We know that she has discovered Ralik Nam. So, but I guess, how does she know that they are looking for the Assassin's Guild? I don't think that, that that's ever explained. What about you? What are your thoughts?
1: On that particular instance or just this section?
0: Either. I, You could talk about both if you wanted to.
1: Um, I kind of, like, I have a feeling that Sari probably heard the whole conversation. She's just playing it off like she didn't. Um, you know, and i I don't know if she's going to take what she heard and go relay it to somebody else, but I don't know. I just kind of feel that way. Um, But maybe not. I mean, I guess, you know, they hear footsteps and turn around, but um, the, uh, you know, her like being able to sense them, I thought that was interesting, you know, with the shield. And I, I, I really liked how, Quick Ben and Clom kind of recognized what kind of situation they were in, and they're like, okay, well, we're just going to play along here, and we just need her to leave. Their deception was interesting, I thought.
0: Right. Um, Well, from what I understand about the world so far is that you're only able to sense your own warren. Right? So if Quick Ben well, no, I guess yeah, I, I guess I feel like I can't quite comprehend it, but I feel like because he was linked to Shadow Throne's realm via his Warren of Chaos that she was somehow able to detect that link even though he had put a shield around the link if that makes sense because she essentially is working for shadow throne which is how she was able to detect i don't think she has a talent i think that no
1: i uh, yeah i don't either i think that's just what they told her you know to kind of shoo sure her away i agree
0: yeah so um but here's my question is, is she cotillion's puppet or is cotillion possessing her or like mind controlling her? Cause like up until you said, uh, an agent of the rope, like that got me thinking, like is, is cotillion possessing sorry? Or is he externally manipulating her via strings or mind control or something like that? Did you get, did, I mean, is that how you saw it this whole time too, or?
1: I thought we saw in a previous chapter that we could be pretty certain that he was like possessing her.
0: That's what I thought too. But yeah, I guess, I mean, I mean. Someone as powerful as Cotillion could probably be doing both as he pleased, right? Yeah,
1: and I know I think I said agent, but I think they used a different word in the chapter. Got it. Okay, um, that was just the word I chose to use. Yes, summarizing it.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, another t- kind of tension-filled section, and.
1: Yeah, there there was because I think it was kind of set at the end, but I think you know I think Kalam was ready to attack sorry. and that's why Quick Ben put his hand on his shoulder because he knew it too, and he's like, "Dude, we can't we can't do this. Cause we'll get annihilated. She'll fuck our shit up. She'll wreck our day."
0: Right. Yeah, I it, I could definitely kind of feel like things are like tension is building, things are building up to something. You know i don't know if like everybody's gonna have this like big confrontation at the like androby hills or or what but yeah i feel like like something's gonna happen here yeah like i can feel i can feel it building whereas before you know it just seemed to kind of be um yeah i think i said no how to explain it just the 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 normal motion of the book like background information but, yeah uh, yeah i don't know i i mean i feel like we talked about the more important parts of the section did you have any other thoughts or
1: um there wasn't anything else i was looking to add so unless you had something
0: no i um uh, that was all that, that those were all my thoughts pertain to that particular section all right well we can move on then cool Ralek, sitting at the table of the phoenix inn looks up from his drink and notices a heavyset man Ralek immediately notices the man's knives being able to identify the pommels as the mark of an assassin the man rudely makes his way to the bar and orders a drink it was obvious to Ralek the man wanted to be marked possibly by someone like Ralek, a member of the guild of assassins he questions himself who is the bait, as this didn't seem right. Ocelot has himself convinced that the Malazan Empire has sent claws into Rudistan, and now wage war against the guild. Ralik found himself unsure of this. Furthering his study of the heavyset man, he deduces that he must be Malazan, as he's got the look of one, and because he appears to be from the seven cities. He wonders if the man is a claw alarm bells rang into P- ralic's head none of this felt right marilio leans in at this point and asks Ralik if everything is okay ralic tells him that it's guild business and if he is and if marilio is thirsty ralic gets up and elbows a young man in the back and this young man breaks for the kitchen He then pushes his way through the crowd and flags down Skurve, the bartender. He orders another drink. He didn't need to look to know that Rallik had been marked. Years of experience told him that he was. He thought to himself that he had done what his commander Ocelot had wanted, but he suspected that he would be asked to do more. He returns to the table, and Murillo is given his drink. Sensing the growing tension, he took his cue and made his leave. He waited, or I guess Raleck waited at the table for another five minutes, briefly brushing gazes with the man at the bar. He gets up and heads for the kitchen, leaving the inn through the door that was left open. On the opposite side of the alleyway, Ocelot emerges from a recessed shadow on the wall. He tells Ocelot that it's done and tells that he can find his man at the bar nursing an ale with two daggers in his belt. Ocelot is surprised when he learns the man is still inside. He orders Ralek to head back inside and make sure that he's seen. Ralek tells Ocelot that he's positive he was seen. Ocelot tells Ralek that he is to draw the man out and lead him to Tarlo's warehouse, into the loading grounds. Sneering, Ocelot says that it's Morkan's order, and this time Ralik is to use the front door. Showing his disgust at the plan, Raleck simply stares at his commander. Heading back inside, he enters the main room and stops dead in his tracks. The man was gone. And then Raleck simply heads for the front door. So, I mean, the, the assassin. And again, I like how Erickson makes us think or doubt ourselves. Well, at least me anyway. But this has to be Kalam. So uh, the, the assassin at the table has to be Kalam. Because who else would it be?
1: Where do you think Quick Ben is?
0: I think he's outside.
1: Okay. I think that's a pretty good idea.
0: Right? Because, I mean, Kalam and Quick Ben, why would they both go in? Because you have to assume that if if he is discovered that he would maybe make some type of exit right yeah i think that i think that i know that ocelot is under the impression that like they're the guild is at way or at or waging war with the claws but i think that ralic's intuition is correct i think that he thinks that Ocelot is maybe over-exaggerating the situation because we know from Kalam and Quick Bend that they are simply looking to talk to the guild because that's the typical move of the Malazan Emperor or Empire. And I think that Vorkan knows this as well, being as high up as I think she is. So, I think that Ocelot may not be understanding something, or he's just he's a sabotager, a saboteur, and it, yeah i I don't know. I guess we don't really know much about ocelot.
1: No, I don't feel like we know much either.
0: I know that Murillo could sense Ralic's tension um with the man at the bar, and I know that in the section. He took his cue, is what it was said. So, my question is: Is like, do Raleigh and marilio have some type of pre-ordained plan for situations like this? Did they use some type of code in their brief conversation, like Raleigh telling Murillo that it's guilt business or asking if he's thirsty, trigger some type of cue for marilio? like? And also, is this in relation to bumping into the youth so that the youth could open the kitchen door into the alleyway from the kitchen? Like, is there a reason they always drink at the Phoenix Inn and that's just because they have an escape plan, so to speak, is potentially what I pulled out of the section? I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, they could have it, you know, quite set up there, you know, for when whenever they need it. I mean, I could. It would make sense, right? You know, you can have your, you can have your code word. You can have, you know, I don't know. Maybe you got to pay off the bartender a little bit. Like, hey, if I say or do this, then I need you to do this,
0: type deal. Right. Right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but I, again, why was, why was Ocelot just hanging out in the alley? Like, is he just always there to be able to be? like reported to like it just i find that weird and like really i think i get where you're gone, but i can't articulate it either um i and and again this kind of goes back to like Borkins' plan i think that being that ocelot tells relic that he's supposed to lead this assassin somewhere. And I think we immediately go to like ambush, right. Or to like attack this unknown, uh, you know, assassin. But I think, I think that Varkin's plan overall is to establish a secure and out of sight rendezvous with the Malazan or Kalam or in QuickBat, Right. I believe this is, this is, why relic was ordered to dress and act like an assassin all those many chapters ago do you remember like that first encounter with ocelot or he's just like you need to stand out I think yeah the plan was that relic essentially was the bait
1: yeah and he did not like it
0: yes he was not very happy with it but
1: i mean nobody's happy being bait
0: but yeah, I I mean that's that's essentially all I really pulled out of this section was just that it has to have been kalam and that there has to there had to have been some like preordained ordained plan to you know get out quickly and three I think that it's more of a unification but everybody seems to be confused about it or speculative about it.
1: I think it was Clem also. I mean, we already knew they were going there.
0: Right, because sorry. So, I mean,
1: it's just it's the only thing that makes any sense is that's who it would be.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, and again, maybe we'll find out differently as we go along. But, yeah, I don't, I can't imagine it would be anybody else. I mean, come no, on. I don't think so either. It's the only assassin that's in Whiskey Jacks. Company, you know, Quick Ben. Yeah, he's not an assassin though. He wouldn't have marks of an assassin. No. That was pretty much all I had for that section. Any, and did you have anything else that you wanted to add to it?
1: Um, I don't think there's no. But I don't think so.
0: Cool. Well, you wanna leave You wanna read our last section here? Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Like a nose. Yep time with tatter sale. Yep.
1: <laughs> oh, he brought you, you went there. I did. All right. Crocus leaned against the wall of the, the, the merchant's house and looked at the third story window. The light had been on for two hours, but the last 15 minutes had been dark. He was exhausted and had his doubts, wondering why he was there. Maybe the dark haired woman at the end spooked him. He knew she'd kill him to keep her secret, or maybe it was the spinning coin that had him confused. Nothing seemed normal. He didn't think his dream of meeting the Da'aro maiden was so wrong, but everything had gone to shit since then. If only he hadn't looked at her. He then realized the problem was that she was highborn, and now realized how stupid that was, uh, you know, that he would meet her as a petty thief. He didn't know how he convinced himself that it would be possible. Talking out loud, he says he can't believe it. He's about to put the Maiden's Ransom back. He found the wall he'd been looking for and says, let's get this over with and begins to climb.
0: I still think he's infatuated.
1: I think so, too. I think he's going to climb up there. She's probably going to be sleeping again. He's going to put... Well, maybe she won't be sleeping, but he's going to return this stuff and he's going to see her and, um, you know, like the feelings are going to be even stronger. Or it's going to go horribly wrong. She's going to be like awake and be like, who the fuck are you? And he's like, oh, I stole your shit, but I'm giving it back because I love you. And she's going to be like, uh, what the fuck?
0: That was probably like the best synopsis to what I was thinking. I think that <laughs> or wake up as he like enters the room and like, yeah, I, yeah. I I don't think that it's going to go according to plan, you know, but I don't know. Part of me feels hopeful for him. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because I like him and his change of heart isn't necessarily a bad thing. I, you know, I mean, I know it's maybe out of his character, compared to you know how his friends and family know him but from a reader's perspective we don't have as much history so yeah i don't know i seemed i seem to feel more confused about crocus and like is it potentially Opan's influence that is making him change his mind it could be i mean because he calls that out doesn't he he calls out like everything was great until I did this stupid shit until I looked at her body, but it doesn't seem like anything anything is you know, nothing seems to be like a consequence or circumstantial. It seems to be intentional. And I think that Opon has something to do with this because Opon is I mean, using Krakas as a tool. So...
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's, it sure seems like if, you know he's feeling like, oh, if I didn't look at her, you know, I would have just moved on and it would, everything would have been fine. But he looked at her and fell for her and all this and that.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I feel like at this point I'd be just repeating what I've already said about Krakus. But, yeah, I'm curious just to see where this goes and how this turns out.
1: Yeah. It'll be it'll be interesting. It's yeah, going to go one of two ways, I think. Which one's more likely? I'm I don't know. I'm leaning towards going poorly.
0: Or maybe maybe she falls in love with him.
1: I mean, possible, but I don't know.
0: Yeah. I guess I don't know either. Again, I feel like Opon is going to do something here or maybe not. We'll but yeah, well, we'll just read on because now we can
1: yes now we can
0: oh damn time
1: I know it's not as long as last time but yeah things have been a little screwy on our timeline here
0: yeah Just, I mean it's the end of summer or not the end of summer but end of the school year so lots of things to wrap up I don't feel like this episode is as long as uh, as some of the other ones, I could be wrong. I guess I haven't been paying attention to the time. But our next chapter is the last chapter in uh, the sub-book, The Assassins.
1: And then we go to the Gadroby Hills.
0: Yep, yep. So this next chapter, it looks like it's about 30-ish pages. So we should have a little bit more uh, content to talk about. But yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm excited to read on definitely me too we can be found on google podcasts apple podcasts anchor and spotify
1: yes and then as far as the socials you can find us on facebook twitter instagram just search uh, dnj's epic quest um twitter is by far the most active um don't seem to get much interaction on Facebook. Looks like there's a little bit on Instagram. I tried messing with that, but not really my thing. Um, so we're growing, um, appreciate everybody following along and having a good time with us, but it would be cool to, you know, maybe see a review. Um, you know, I'm not pleading for a five-star review or anything like that, but just, uh, you know, some feedback on, on the podcast side of things. Um, I know I listen to some other podcasts and I know they say that, you know, rating and reviewing helps get things out to others. So makes it more discoverable. So if anybody wants to do that, whatever you feel is a fair rating um, and just leave us, leave us an honest review. We'd love to read it. Yes, we would. Yes.
0: Hi, man. Well, I guess uh, till next time. Talk to you later, bud. Later, man.